So let's look at the story with Jacob and Esau here for just a minute, because I think there's some very instructive things for us today. Esau rejected his heritage and did his own thing. He sold his birthright, and as it's described in Genesis 25:34, when he sells his birthright for stew, thus Esau despised his birthright. It isn't described as something just sort of casual and mistake. He is described as despising it. Then he married these two Hittite babes. And it's interesting because in Genesis 26:34, which is before the theft of the blessing, it says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to his wife, and Basmah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So when he marries these two ladies, both of his parents disapprove. So when we get to the theft of the blessing, what I'm going to say to you is Isaac loved his son, but was under no illusions as to who he was or what he was. Isaac didn't approve of the marriages. Isaac knew his two sons. And what he's trying to do is give his son the blessing of prosperity and leadership. There's three blessings, of course, in the passage. The blessing of wealth and leadership or power. That's the one that got stolen. Then you have this ambiguous blessing that's given to Esau by his father in between. And it's ambiguous because the way the Hebrew is set up, it can either be read as you shall dwell away from the fatness of the earth or you shall dwell in the fatness of the earth. The Tanakh translates it as you will have the fatness of the earth and so forth. The English Bible translated as a way, so it's ambiguous. And then finally you've got the blessing of Abraham. That's the blessing of children and land. The blessing of Abraham was never on offer to Esau. As I say, Isaac is under no illusions as to who and what his son is, so there was never any thought that Esau was going to get the blessing of Abraham. The blessing that was stolen was not the blessing of Abraham. When he learns of the deception, Isaac's reaction is he gets the cold shivers. And I'm suggesting to you that what he realizes at that point is he screwed up trying to split the blessing. The fact that it's been intervened is something that he realizes when he realizes it's been stolen. Notice, by the way, he never rebukes Jacob for stealing the blessing. Now, Esau, of course, vows vengeance. But I was listening to Aleph Beta last night, and this particular lesson that they had is, why didn't Esau carry through and kill his brother? I mean, sort of the stock answer as well. His brother beat feet and went up to Haran. But Esau knew where he was. That's in Scripture. So it's not the case that he has sort of gone off into the woods and hidden in a hole and nobody can find him. He's simply gone up to the family origin there in Haran. Esau knows where he is. Esau has got hundreds of men working for him. So if Esau had wanted to go after him up there, he has the wherewithal to do it. He never does. And this is kind of key. 
because he listens in when his father gives the blessing of Abraham to Jacob. And he realizes that his father is really upset, as is his mother, about his choice of wives. And he realizes that this whole thing with blessing is partially his own fault. In Genesis 28.6, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. So he's overhearing this conversation, and what he's hoping to hear is dad take a stripe off of his brother for being deceitful. That's what he's looking for when he's eavesdropping. Hey, that doesn't happen. No word is mentioned of the stolen blessing. And then further, the instructions he get is, go back to the family origins, get yourself a wife there, do not marry locally. So in verse 7, Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padanaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father Isaac, Esau went to Ishmael, Isaac's half-brother, goes back to the family and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, and the sister of Nebaioth. So what he's trying to do there is he is trying to make things sort of right, which indicates to me that he feels guilty about what he's done, and he's repented. So he never actually tries to kill his brother, and he goes and he takes a wife from the family as his parents want, And when you stack all this up, rejecting the birthright, all that, what comes here is that he feels guilt, realizes that he is a big contributor to the problem. Yeah, his sense of justice is offended because his brother did get away with stealing the blessing, but he realizes he's got a part in that, and because of his guilt, he's repented. Now, I want to take you back to Genesis 3. Everything starts in Genesis, right? And we have the unfortunate incident with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The reaction of Adam when he hears God walking in the garden is not guilt. The reaction is shame. He realizes he's naked. He runs and hides. He shifts blame. It wasn't my fault. She gave it to me. And his wife goes, well, it wasn't my fault. The snake did it. And, of course, the snake's got nobody to blame, so everything lands on him. The point is, these two people are reacting with shame and not guilt. So shame is, I don't want the people I know and love to think less of me. Guilt is, I have violated my own standards, and I need to repent, and I need to make it right. Two very different things. Then the third guy that we have is Cain. Cain feels neither guilt nor shame. Cain is brazen. Am I my brother's keeper? So there's no sense of either guilt or shame on Cain's part. Adam feels shame that he's been found out. And Esau feels guilt because he realizes he's part of the problem and he needs to fix it. And the thing about shame 
is it is a social thing. You're not really sorry about what you've done. You're simply sorry about the social consequences of being found out. So what does that have to do with us today? Everything. Our society right now is brazen, like Cain. They are sinning with a high hand, and they do not feel guilt for their sin. And what they are using to control people is shame. So let's take one of their favorite examples, white privilege. The results of what they are calling white privilege, and you do that whatever you want, like it or not, the results of that are what God calls blessings. A stable family, wealth, a good community, a stable justice system, living up to standards. All of those things are being called in our society today acting white. God calls them blessings. Everybody understand the disconnect that we're dealing with here. Because what our society has become is brazen. They neither feel guilt nor shame at their behavior. And what they're trying to do is shame those who follow God's standards and accrue blessings into giving up their stuff. And the whole thing is based on envy covetousness. So, let's look at, for example, Cain. Cain is brazen. And what does Cain want? Cain wants the blessing. He wants the blessing and acceptance that Abel had. Because remember, when Abel came and brought a sacrifice to God, God accepted it, and he turned up his nose at Cain's sacrifice. So the thing that Cain wants is the blessing of God or the acceptance of God. What Cain is not willing to do is come to God on God's terms. Let's go back to Isaac. Remember I said early on that Isaac is under no illusions about who and what his son is. Isaac is willing to accept his son. Isaac loves his son. Isaac wants his son to succeed. That's the basis of that first blessing. Never going to be the blessing of Abraham. That was never going to be his. But he really loves his son, and he wants his son to succeed. God really loves us and wants us to succeed. On God's terms, not on our terms. So that's where we have the problem. What we have is people with a brazen face who want the blessings, if you will, wealth, prosperity, all that kind of stuff, and they want it on their own terms and not on God's terms. I'll give you a hint. That's not going to work. God is not fooled. So what we have here is an inversion and perversion of the things that God calls blessings, and those are turned into objects of shame, with the idea that the people who have those blessings, because they are ashamed of those blessings, will give those blessings to the people who are shaming them. Now, we have a built-in sense of justice. God built it into us. So one of the reasons that Esau resolves to kill his brother 
is because he thinks that behavior is just based on the way his brother has dealt with him. And furthermore, if dad were any kind of a father, he'd take a stripe off of that sucker and send him out to look at the back end of sheep for the rest of his life. Certainly wouldn't give him a blessing. So you have this sense of justice that everybody has built into us. And what again has happened is we have taken that sense of justice and we have perverted it. So now you have all kinds of hyphenated justice. There are no hyphenated justices in the Bible. It is simply justice. And furthermore, God gives us a standard against which to measure behavior to determine whether or not something is just. It's very clear. And God's big on justice. When Moses sets things up, he says, you guys establish just courts. That's one of God's laws. So justice is a big deal. Hyphenated justice is not a big deal. Hyphenated justice is something that we, with our brazen faces, have invented in order to promote shame in the people who are acting according to God's law and receiving the blessings. Kind of important that you understand what's going on. In fact, something I read, the left has a problem right now because their shame words don't work anymore. We have been called, we that follow God's laws have been called greedy, racist, homophobic, all these kinds of things, and we just don't care anymore. So instead of coming to God, what they do is keep escalating. It starts off that you're a homophobe and it winds up that you're a mass murderer. We just keep up in the rhetoric here so that we can finally get you guys to feel some sense of shame. Because mostly we don't anymore. But it's important to understand the perversion and the twist that's happened here. Because all of the things that our society today wants to make you feel ashamed of are in fact defined by God as blessings. That's really important to hang on to because one of the things that Satan is really, really good at is words. Satan is very good with words. It starts in the garden. And what we see is they are very good with rhetoric. And quite frankly, nobody wants to be in a cocktail party and have everybody look at him and say, Oh, you're a racist. Or, Oh, you're a homophobe and get shunned. I mean, we're social beings. That's the reason it works, is because we're social beings and we like to have good relations with people around us. So if you get somebody that has something that shames you, it's very powerful. So understand that, but understand also that it's rhetorical jujitsu. Now, next thing. What happens when we are caught in a shameful situation? Go back to the garden. What did Adam and Eve do? They try and shift blame, don't they? So they are ashamed at being naked. Well, the woman, she, she gave me that and I ate it. It's her fault. The woman goes, what? No, it's a snake. He deceived me. It's his fault. 
What they don't do is they don't accept blame and they don't accept guilt and they don't try and return to God's law. And one of the things to understand that much of the church doesn't understand anymore is there is no grace without law. If you haven't violated God's law, you don't need his grace. So the whole basis of the system is his laws. So when you violate his laws, what God says is mostly he doesn't have to do anything because the consequences of violating his laws make your life turn to sludge if you do it consistently. So here we have a society that has inverted stuff and has turned God's blessings into objects of shame and is brazen about the sinfulness and behaving in ways that are contrary to God's law and guess what's happened? Everything's turning to mud. Now, what is the reaction there? Blame shifting. It's not my fault, it's your fault. The reason I'm a failure is because you're a racist. The reason I'm a failure is because you're a sexist. The reason I'm a failure is because of you, not me. And furthermore, where God responds to guilt and repentance by bringing you back on his own terms, this society responds to everything going bad with programs. We have a program to handle druggies. We have a program to handle dysfunctional families. We have a program to handle feral bastards. We have a program to do all of this stuff. And guess what? The programs don't work. All of the programs are failures. But the thing about a failed program in our society is it means more meetings, more donuts, and more money. So rather than realizing that these programs don't work, what they do is they double down and try it harder. And guess what? It keeps not working. More meetings, more donuts, more appropriations, more walking around looking serious and pointing fingers at the problem. The answer is really simple. God gave you a book, gave us a book. He says, read the book. Do what the book says. And what you'll have are blessings in your society. And that's what we did for the first hundred years in this country, is we took the book seriously. Now, we weren't perfect at it. Nobody ever is. But we took it seriously, and we tried to live according to the book. And when you quit living according to the book, people would shame you, but you would have a sense of guilt because you would know that you weren't living according to something you should do. That sense of guilt is gone because we are no longer a biblical society. What we're doing is we're being governed by experts and their programs. It doesn't work. It's never going to work. And the only thing that is going to change that is repentance. That's the only cure. More programs isn't going to do it. More money isn't going to do it. Now let's look at us and look at Esau. Jacob and Esau were twins. I think that's a big deal. Because what you have is they both grew up in the same family. They both grew up in a wealthy family. 
So they both had exactly the same opportunities. That's, I think, the idea of twins. One of them goes this way, one of them goes that way. Now, they both got their problems. As we read about Jacob, we discover that he is fully human, and he got lots of warts just like everybody else does. But Jacob tries to do what is right, eventually. Esau goes the other way. We have all been born into the most wealthy society that has ever existed on the planet. We have had all of the advantages, just like Jacob and Esau. And some of us have chosen to go off and do our own thing, to reject our birthright, to reject these blessings, to call all the blessings curses, to say that anybody who is blessed is somehow shameful. Some of us are trying to do our best to follow God's plan. We reap the blessings of it. And we are, by the majority of society, shamed. I've got to tell you, I don't feel a sense of shame, but yeah, what the heck. So, the only thing that will lead this country back to blessing is returning to God's Torah. Falling on our faces, saying we have sinned. We are guilty, not shameful, because we have violated God's written instructions. The only way back is just like Isaac loved both of his sons, God loves us too. And if you fall on your face, repent, get your neighbors to repent, and quit doing this stuff that they're doing, which is perverse, and instead live their lives according to God's Torah, God will hear. He always does. Take, for example, Ahab. Ahab was what, husband of Jezebel, right? That guy. He was a murderer. He was a weakling. He was married to quite a gal. And God said through the prophet, I'm going to kill you. And he fell on his face, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes and repented. And God said, okay, fine. I won't. So all these curses are going to land on your descendants. And what I will tell you is had his descendants done the same thing, fallen on their face, covered themselves with sackcloth and repented, then it would have just kept going on forever and never landed. But of course they didn't. So when society tries to pull this verbal jujitsu on you and make you feel guilty for the blessings of God. Just ignore them. In fact, tell them to repent. That'll really annoy them because they don't think that they are sinning. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why the gospel doesn't get a lot of traction in our society. Because good news is only good news if you realize how sinful you are. If you don't realize that you're sinful, then the concept of grace is meaningless. Remember, I said grace is a function of law. 
if you don't have law and you aren't in violation of the law, then grace means nothing to you. It's simply a question of, gee, things aren't going well and I don't have enough stuff, but he's got stuff so I see if I can get it out of him, which is where we are today. So, when they try and do this verbal jujitsu on you, just look at them and say, you need to repent. One other thing, when they accuse you of something, the ultimate question is, by what standard? If they say you're a bad person for this reason or that reason, by what standard am I bad? Most of them can't give you one because it's all social. And if they do give you a standard, you can say, I have a competing standard. My standard is this book, and according to this standard, my behavior is just fine. I reject your standard, hence I reject what you're trying to do here.